Welcome to the second and final installment of the 2020 NISOA ECSR joint webinar series. My name is Lance Van Heitzma, and I will be co-moderating this webinar with my dear good friend, Mark Cahan. We are excited to have some of the best clinicians in collegiate soccer joining us today. Many of you have already attended a webinar series this summer, but for those that are new, we're going to kick it over to Mark to discuss the rules of engagement. Mark? Thank you, Lance. Always exciting to co-moderate with you. <laughs> and most of our attendees have been on joint webinars so far. And so most of you know this information already. But just as a reminder, we encourage you all to be part of this conversation today. There are two ways that you can connect. First, you can use the chat option to be part of the conversation. You can have conversations with other attendees, or you can use the question and answer feature to ask a question. We'll monitor the chat as well as that question and answer section and surface those questions today. So your video is turned off, so you know there will be no video. We highly encourage you to participate to maximize your learning experience. Uh, we might also be bringing on some participants to discuss a clip. If we do, you'll get a prompt. And please unmute yourself to talk. Back to you, Lance. Thank you, Mark. As I said before, we're very excited about tonight, today's clinicians. Uh, we have one that's returning, that's a familiar face. We have another one that's brand new, but is also a familiar face. So I'm gonna introduce him first. Uh, this individual is a four-time MLS Referee of the Year, which is a, a current record shared with Brian Hall. Uh, he's a retired FIFA assistant referee from 1993 to 2000. He attended the 1990 Armed Forces Tournament. And I know this because I have the bag that <laughs> proves that he attended. Wow. Okay. There's a flashback for you. He was the former director of referees with U.S. Soccer from 2008 to 2010. And to be quite honest, that's how Mark and I got our start refereeing was meeting this individual at the Nike Friendlies event back in 2009. Uh, he's a former player at the University of Virginia. And I also have proof of that. Uh, so can we go ahead and bring that up real quick? I want to see that. So, so there, there's proof that our clinician was a player at one point in his career. Looks like a, a player pass in, in an adult league, if I'm, if I'm, if I'm uh, correct. Now, you, here's a fun fact about this individual that you don't know. He actually has been a, a stunt double in recent movies. And if you could pull up the next picture, he was a stunt double for Nicolas Cage in the movie Con Air. So there's a little fun fact about our clinician that you may not know. Uh, he's, he's officiated multiple Final Fours. He's in the NYSOA Hall of Fame class of 2004. Uh, he's the current NCAA Division I conference assigner for many conferences such as the ACC, the Ivy, the Patriot Men, the MAAC, the CAA, the American East. And I probably missed a couple and left a couple off there, and I apologize. He's also a current ECSR board of directors and co-founder, Mr. Paul Tambo Tamburino. Thank you, Paul, for joining us. Hey, thanks, Lance. There's only one correction. Uh, I went to the University of Maryland. That's oh! <laughs> Yeah. I'm never going to let that one down now. Yeah, and uh, actually, the, the, the lookalike thinks I'm more like, uh, you know, Al Pacino and Serpico than I am uh, Nicolas Cage. But anyway, but thanks for that flashback, Air Mark. You found it. So 
but yeah, welcome everybody. I'm looking forward to the, the discussions today. Um, you know, uh, this is uh, my first one with, uh, with the NISOA joint thing, so this is good. Uh, looking forward to the, uh, the banter back and forth. And um, just uh, go into this uh, couple things, Lance, that's what you want me to do? Yeah, I'm gonna introduce uh, Todd real quick first, and then we'll we'll get back to you, Tambo. So, Tambo, we you know thank you very much for taking time out of your busy schedule to uh, to be here with us. Thank yeah, you. Sure. Okay, thanks. Thank you. Uh, the second one will be a very brief introduction because I've introduced him probably at least eight times now, and I'm running out of things to talk about. But uh, this person is a 2010 NISOA Hall of Famer. Uh, our current senior director of instruction. He oversees all of the educational material that NISOA puts out, including the uh, preseason guide, which we'll be receiving in the, or everybody will be receiving in the mail uh, in August. You know, please welcome Todd Abraham. Thank you, Todd. Thanks, Lance. Thanks, Mark. And I want to add my welcome to Paul as well. Paul, Thanks. we're glad you're here. Thank you. Okay, so now we're going to kick it back to Paul. Paul's going to discuss a little bit about the upcoming season and uh, what he's hearing from uh, his conferences. Go ahead, take it away, Paul. All right, thanks, Lance. Yeah, uh, you know, as you know, this has been a very unusual time for not just, uh, you know, um, personally for everybody on the call, but also when it comes to the collegiate sports and sports in general. And, uh, you know, as, as you can be well aware, you know, I'm just constantly on the phone with my bosses, uh, you know, in my conferences and my colleagues in uh, NISOA, my colleagues in the, in the elite group um, of what's going on in everybody's conferences. So, you know, as you know, as you may have heard, if you're following the the, uh, uh, the websites and uh, the assigning websites, most of the games have been canceled. Uh, some conferences have postponed their fall season. Some are still hopeful that they can get it off. Um, uh, but right now, uh, I think the NCAA meets August 4th, which is Tuesday. Um, their, their, their board is going to meet again, decide what they're going to do with the NCAA championships, from what I understand. So we'll know more then. Um, but there are, you know, some conferences that are attempting to play. Um, and, you know, they have to follow the guidelines of each individual school they may be visiting or the conference. Um, some conferences are just paying conference games only starting in mid-September. Um, so nothing before September 1 for sure. Uh, the conferences not before September 11, September 17th, and so on. So when conference play starts. Um, in some conferences, they they divvied up the, the conference into divisions at East or West if, uh, you know, um, you know for, for instance, the Big East has seven teams in the Midwest seven teams on the, on the uh, six teams on the East Coast. So they split them in those two divisions to minimize travel. Um, so uh, that's basically, you know, the, the, what the, the conferences are right now. Things are always subject to change. Um, so we just have to wait and see, sit back. I appreciate, you know, everybody's patience. Um, I, I, I appreciate, uh, you, you know, the, you know, the questions that come my way, are we going to play? What do we need to do? And, uh, as my boss said in the ACC yesterday, the thing that she says the most is, I don't know. So we, we just don't know what's going to happen at this point. Uh, so everybody just has to sit tight like we're doing. It's just sitting tight waiting for the NCAA and the conference to decide how they're going to proceed. Um, I do know that every conference that, uh, that I assign and speaking to my colleagues that they are looking at a spring schedule. We have no idea what that's going to look like. Um, uh, 
Uh, if it's going to be just the minimum of six games, is it going to be this conference games only? Is it going to be in full schedule? Nobody knows how that's going to look. Um, so we just have to wait and see how that is. Um, the, the COVID protocol, again, it's, it's, it's you know, I, I don't have a whole lot to say about it uh, because, you know, a lot of the conferences have canceled the fall season. Um, but I do know that, you know, that, you know, some will have locker rooms, some will not have locker rooms, some will have refreshments, some will not have refreshments. So as we know, as the season kicks off, we'll be getting more direction so we can, you know, give all of you the direction of what needs to be done, um, you know, so to keep everybody safe. We do know that the players on the bench will be wearing masks. Uh, the fourth official will need, need to wear a mask. Uh, you'll need to have a mask before the game after the game and at halftime. Um, we don't know about video review yet. Uh, and we don't know about headsets yet. So there's all kind of, you, you know, questions that I think everybody has, including this panel of how everything is going to work. Um, I did see that one of my conferences that, that the ball boys must be 18 years of age and older. So we will not have ball kids on the, on the, on the, on the touchline with the balls. Uh, they will be disinfecting the balls as they as they you know come out of come out of play. So there's a there's a lot unknowns, and uh, we just have to sit back and wait and see. And and again, I, I appreciate everybody's patience uh, with with all of your signers because it's been kind of crazy for us as well. So so I, I do appreciate it. So thank you. Hey Paul, quick question. Thank you for that information. Are any has any of your conferences talk about uh, having referees uh, have uh, tests done, like COVID tests done either prior to the season or like weekly during the season before their appointments? The ACC, uh, I was just on a call with them yesterday, sorry, Friday. Um, they will uh, send kits, uh, testing kits to the, only the referee, the whistle, because they are still allowing them to travel. Um, they will send a, you know, a kit out to them to get them tested, send it back. And um, so they will be, uh, see if they're eligible to, to travel and to referee. Uh, no other testing for the ARs because they're all locals. I think it comes down to a, a monetary factor at that point. You know, you can't test 300 ARs or whatever we have here, you know. So, um, but right now, only, only the referee will be tested. And you envision there to be temperature checks for everybody at the, uh, at the site, though, correct? That's, that's what they're talking about. Yeah, temperature, temperature checks at the, at the site, yes. Okay, great. Paul, thank you for that information. Now we're going to kick it over to Todd and many of you on this uh, webinar have already seen the rule changes and have seen it multiple times, but we also know this was a very, very important year for the rule changes because it's, it was extremely extensive what the NCAA did. So we want to make sure everybody is fully prepared for when we take the field, whenever that may be. Uh, so Todd, you can go ahead and just do a brief overview of the rule changes. Yeah, thanks, Lance. And, uh, and again, thanks, Paul, for the oversight on what's happening with the conferences right now. I will go through just uh, the, the rule changes at a high level here. We've talked about these rule changes uh, through a number of different webinars that are available on the NISOA site. So if anybody wants more detail on these rule changes, please go to the NISOA YouTube channel and you can get more of these changes. If we go to the next page, please. Um, so the, the rule changes this year fall into a number of different areas. Uh, video review, restarts, handball, uh, the change in violent behavior to violent behavior one and two, and fighting. Uh, 
changes on the free kick in the wall, goal kicks and penalty kicks. And, uh, and we also have some work done on what differences still remain. So let me go through these at a very, very high level very quickly for those few people who may not have seen the changes yet. And if we go to the next page, the intent of the changes this year was to get the collegiate game to more closely aligned with the international game. And while these are not 100% consistent with the IFAB changes, uh, they are mostly aligned. So understanding both the changes and the remaining differences is critical. Um, the changes also require some changes in mechanics, and we went through that a bit last week when we talked about the change to goal kicks as an example, with goal kicks now being a restart that can be taken quickly, and the ball not having to clear the penalty area. This requires changes in both uh, the ARs and the referees' positioning and attention areas. And uh, we were having a bit of a discussion before the call started about some of the tactical changes that we've even seen in the international game associated with some of the rule changes and law changes. Please continue to use the resources that we have for you if there are questions. We do have a session later today to go through questions that came in over the past few weeks about the rule changes. And uh, for those of you who haven't registered, it, it's available this evening at 5 o'clock Eastern time. And use your colleagues to, to work through some of the situations you expect you may see during the year and how you think you might deal with it in some of the alternatives. This is about trying to, uh, to have a chance to pre-referee some situations before you actually encounter them on the field. And unfortunately, we need to always tell this to our, uh, our intercollegiate referees. You don't get to choose whether you like the rule changes that the NCAA makes. You just get to execute them. So these rule changes are the ones that the NCAA wants us to referee by. And whether you agree with them or not, or whether you wanted more of them put in place, that's not our call. Our call is to use the NCA rulebook, and uh, you can find that online. You can go to nca.com, and there's a rules tab section on the center circle, and the rulebook is available there to be downloaded. Moving to the next page. So these are the major changes. The coaching and team areas have been um, actually changed beyond this as part of a temporary rule change for this year. And this will come out as we get closer to the season. The NCAA has already made some adjustments to the official rules to allow for more social distancing. And the coaching and team areas can now extend even further than they were in the rule book. And the NCAA will come out with a, a policy on that before the season starts as it's still working out the details. But the rule change here is that officials, uh, rather coaching staff members, are eligible to communicate with any of their other coaching staff members, whether they're at the field or in the coaching area via electronic devices. So if someone in the coaching area is on a cell phone or an iPad, don't worry about it. It's all legal, not for you to worry about. Uh, we do get questions about how do we know the person they're communicating with isn't suspended. Again, not our job to officiate that. We just assume that they're doing what they're supposed to in that sense. Video review, we added an additional video review item to correct timing errors. And again, this is, uh, the intent here is to make sure we get things that are uh, correctable, that we can get right correct. The clock doesn't need to be visible for you to be able to correct this. If you just see the clock hasn't started properly or stopped properly, you can use any means you have to correct that error, whether it's your, your watch or whether it's uh, looking how long the clock was running for and then correcting that time by timing that yourself. That's all fine. 
The protest rule has been narrowed. Uh, I don't know if this is good or bad for us, but the only things that now can be protested are situations involving identification of players or a player who's illegally participating. So all that stuff we talked about over the last number of years about these situations become protestable when we mess up are no longer protestable, which puts even more of an onus on us to get it right since there's no recourse for the teams and the coaches if we mess up. Restarts, a number of changes there, but changing the restart procedure for when the ball is out inside the penalty area, allowing for that ball to be put in play before uh, the opponents clear the penalty area and for allowing the ball to be put in play within the penalty area. And, uh, and those restarts, again, completely aligning with the IFAB law changes. Another restart change is around drop ball and uh, the fact that drop balls are no longer contested and that drop balls now require that all players other than the person receiving the drop ball be five yards away from that drop ball spot, including teammates. <clears throat> the handball rule has been changed again to be consistent with the IFAB changes that were implemented last year. So now if a player uh, gains possession or control of the ball after it's accidentally touched his or her hand or arm, and then immediately, and immediately it's an important word here, scores in the opponent's goal or creates a goal-scoring opportunity, then that's a handball. This rule also has been um, broadened so that you can't score in the opponent's goal directly from your hand or arm. And so you say, well, what, is that, um, what does that kind of mean where we say including the goalkeeper? This means that if the goalkeeper happens to be able to throw the ball 100 yards, uh, they can't score. So a goalkeeper clearance, and this may happen on a wet day, but it's probably going to happen once in your entire referee career, uh, throws the long ball and it goes into the opponent's goal, then it's a goal kick. <clears throat> Moving to the next page, violent behavior has now been split into violent behavior one and two, and fighting has been narrowed. So this really redefines the fighting rule to be what's truly a fight, two people throwing punches at e each other. And all those things that we've been teaching over the past number of years that were part of the fighting rule have now become violent behavior too. So the difference between violent behavior one and violent behavior two simply is very similar to the difference between violent behavior and fighting in the old rule. And this has to do with, um, with malice, intent to injure, and premeditation. So when you're thinking about whether something is violent behavior one or violent behavior two, it needs to be the, the malice involved in the premeditation of the act that takes you from violent behavior one to violent behavior two. Uh, free kicks, this talks about the change in the wall and the fact that an attacking player now can no longer stand in the wall if there are three or more defenders creating a wall and that any attacking player who wants to get close to the wall must be at least one yard away. And this is where we were talking earlier that we haven't seen internationally now many attackers getting close to the wall. There's no benefit for the attacker to stand, in most cases, one yard away from the wall. They'd rather be in a position that's more advantageous to the attack than being in there to try to mess up the wall, which is what they were doing before this rule change went into place. Mention quickly that goal kicks uh, now don't have to clear the penalty area, and the ball is in play as soon as it's kicked and moved. Um, Penalty kicks, it clarifies the position of the goalkeeper and aligns goalkeeper positioning with what IFAB has done in terms of making sure that the goalkeeper must have one foot on the goal, on or above the goal line, can't be touching the nets or the crossbar, 
and there is a new chart in the rule book that talks about the penalties for any kind of uh, infraction by either the goal kicker or the kicker or their teams. Moving to the next page, just want to highlight the areas that have not been adopted by the NCAA, but this, as I said, is as important as the rule changes that have been adopted. So the NCAA still requires that substitutes leave the field at midfield on the bench side of the field. I recognize that given the fact there won't be many or any fans around this year, this is less of an issue, but this rule was left in place as a player safety consideration by the NCAA. They still want substitutes entering from the bench side of the field so as not to subject them to any kind of abuse from the fans if they were to leave on the opposite side of the field. The NCAA still requires that injured players on the field, attended to on the field, must leave except for the goalkeeper. And one of the changes in IFAB, which was not incorporated by the NCAA, is if the situation is a penalty kick situation, that injured player still may not remain on the field to take the penalty kick. I'll also remind you that uh, a player that substitutes on for an injured player also may not be the one to take a penalty kick in this situation. The penalty kick must be taken by one of the players that was on the field at the time the foul was committed. The NCAA requires that a caution be issued at the next stop as a plan not delayed to allow a promising attack to continue. So we have a situation where you want to give a yellow card, you stop play for the restart, but the attacking team wants to play quickly, you do not have the option to allow that play to quickly uh, continue and then come back and give the yellow card. This is different from advantage, and I want to make sure we're clear on this. So coming back to give a caution after you allow play to continue in a play-on situation is different than when play stops and allowing play to restart and come back. So that caution still must be issued before the restart occurs, and even though it may delay what could have been a promising attack, that must be done according to the NCAA rules. Uh, and lastly, if a game moves into the penalty kick, uh, kicks from the mark to be a tiebreaker, the NCAA still wants misconducts during the game to carry over. So if a, a, a kicker or the goalkeeper had a caution during the game, and then they do, a, do something during the tie-breaking procedure, which requires another caution, that results in an ejection from the game, unlike um, IFAB, which restarts misconduct for the tie-breaking procedure. So again, just want to make sure that we all recognize these remaining rule differences, and uh, these will not obviously be highlighted in the rule book because they weren't changed, and in some respects it's more important to highlight these for us so that you recognize that these are the IFAB law changes that are not part of the NCA rule changes. So with that uh, quick overview of the rule changes, we'll move into the material that we wanted to cover today around positioning, and we'll start with the first clip, and I'll turn it over to Paul to handle that one. Okay. Uh, real quickly, we've got a couple special guests, uh, some uh, VIPs that have, that have joined us today. Um, one of them I'd like to bring on as a panelist, not necessarily to help us because we don't need that much help, but just so everybody can see him and he can say hello. And that is Manny Ortiz Jr. So can we go ahead and bring Manny in, who's also a ECSR board of director? <clears throat> Greetings, Manny.
Okay. All right. Hi, Manny. How are you? Unmute. I guess okay, Manny's Manny, on you're, mute. You're on mute. How about now? Yep. Good morning, Paul, Mark, Todd, and Lance. Uh, pleasure to be with you guys tonight, today, this morning, excuse me. Thank you for yeah, having me. Yeah, it's one of those. It's either morning or night or something. It's hard <laughs> to tell these days. All right. Thanks, Manny. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for uh, letting us bring you on here for, uh, for, uh, so everybody could see you and you'd say hello. And you know, please feel free to help out if you feel we've uh, missed any points, okay? Thank All you. Right. Hey, All right. you have Paul there. You don't need my help. <laughs> this gentleman, Paul, you're going to be a, you're going to, everybody's going to learn something here today. Just the, the knowledge and the experience he has is, uh, I take my notes when I work with Paul. When we do clinics together. I take notes. So it's, uh, oh, I've got mine. Enjoy it. <laughs> there you go. Geez, no pressure here. And by the way, Manny, I got my tennis racket. Okay. <laughs> we'll play this week. All right. Okay. All right, Doug, let's run the first clip. And Mark, I think you were going to, uh, I think Mark and Lance, maybe we're going to start on this. And then Paul, you and I'll pop in after they go through the first bit. Your thing. All right, roll, roll the dice. I mean, roll the clip. We have focuses on AR positioning here. So in the chat, go ahead and let's preface this by saying, we're not necessarily looking for what the AR did poorly. We're looking as what would you do if you were the AR in this situation? Okay. So we want to kind of keep this. We're, we're not too concerned about the negativity, but we're looking at what would you do differently? All right. So go ahead in the chat box, go ahead and uh, put some comments in there and we'll, we'll see if we can, uh, help guide everybody to uh, the correct answer. All right. I got so many comments now, which is great. Damn. I'm going to take the first one I saw, and that was Eugene uh, Premack. And he says, the AR needs to be on the goal line when making the signal and then be in a position and stay there on the goal line. So Mark, can you talk a little bit about what he means there? Yeah, you know, that quick transition and, and you know, the, the game demands, you know, maximum anticipation and, and reaction skills here. And you can see that, um, you know, the assistant referee needs to just be hyper-focused to work as hard as he possibly can to get down to that goal line and then indicate he might be a few steps behind because we're not as fast as the ball, you know, and there's a shot, but you still need to work hard to go all the way to that corner flag before you raise that flag all the way up in the air. And, and this one's very, this, I mean, here, the AR is, is signaling for a goal. Okay. It is extremely hard to be able to tell if the ball, if the entire ball had crossed the goal line when you're not on the goal line. Okay, so you see the AR put the flag up. The referee looks, and if I'm a referee, I'm looking to say, okay, well, why is the flag up? Was there a player offside? And in this case, he's signaling a goal, which creates confusion because nobody knows what's going on. Um, and that's with the referee as well. Now, you have a situation here where you're, you can't sell the call. 
by not being on the goal line. Because after you've put your flag up and the referee signals for, it looks at you and it's a goal, it's hard to tell that it's a goal and hard to sell that decision. You're going to get a lot of heat, not only from the players on the field, but also from the coaching staff. So this is a case where you need to anticipate, you need to work hard, you need to, be con- you need to concentrate and focus, and you need to be on the goal line if you're going to make that call to determine that it was a goal. Now, as Mark said, there are times where we may be a step or two you know, away from the goal line when we see the ball go in the goal. But that doesn't mean by the time you put the flag up, you can still get to the goal line to sell your decision. Because ultimately, uh, it's clips like this that get sent to assigners like Paul and Manny that, from coaches that are wondering how. Looks like Lance may have frozen. So let me, uh, let me just jump in here while he comes back online. So... Uh, one other thing here, which is an important uh, point, is for this to be a goal, the goalkeeper has to have brought the ball into the goal. Because remember, this is a throw-in. So if the goalkeeper has caught the ball completely over the goal line, it is not a goal. Because then the ball went into the net directly from a throw-in, it's a goal kick. So the AR needs to be able to judge not only whether the entire ball crosses the goal line, but also when that happened relative to when the goalkeeper touched it. So a number of different decisions need to be made here. And there was a comment in the chat about the AR being able to cheat a little bit on a play like this because the offside uh, evaluation is, uh, doesn't need to be made on the throw in itself, but only on the subsequent play. And so in anticipating a long throw here, once you see the ball is going right toward the goal, getting down to the end line quickly uh, reads the play in a way that tells you that's the decision you're going to need to make. So. Um, and again, this, if video review was available, this is, a goal, this is a situation that may be reviewed using video review as to whether or not the entire ball crossed the goal line before the goalkeeper touched it, or whether the goalkeeper brought it, the ball touched the goalkeeper and was brought into the goal by him. Paul, anything you want to add on that? We covered everything with the AR for sure. Um, and, you know, some good comments. And I'm glad you brought up the cheat uh word Todd because I just wrote that down in my notes you know about the cheat thing uh but you know I I look at the and I noticed we're talking about the AR but I'm also looking at, at the overall picture of the referee's position is the position of the referee a good position so this is something you know that you know you have to ask yourselves you know can he be further to the left if this was a corner kick for say where would his positioning be um, if he was in the proper position, maybe he has an indication that it's not over the line and then him and the assistant referee have a discussion. But, you know, we're a team here. And, um, you know, f- from an assigner standpoint, we are going to catch all mm-hmm. kind of grief on this, all kind of grief. So, and, you know, and this, this also popped up, you know, you know, Lance just mentioned too, the red flag is a long throw. Mm-hmm. That's the red flag. So you need to be in the position to be where the drop zone is going to be. The drop zone is not going to be, you know, 10 yards from where the thrower is. You know, it's a flip throw. That ball is going to go. And this look, this looks like it traveled 45 yards. And we need to be near the drop zone, which is the referee is not near the drop zone. And there's a lot of bodies in front of him, too. 
Great point, and, and Paul. I want to just bring up one other point here because I saw this in the chat box, and this is kind of clarifying the rule about a throw-in not entering the field of play. This throw-in did enter the field of play, so if the ball went directly over the end line, it is not a throw to the other team. It is uh, a goal kick. And so there was a comment uh, or two in the chat box about it's either uh, a rethrow to the other team or no call. It, it's not a throw to the other team. It's either a goal kick or a goal or continue play. Thank you. Next clip. All right. As Paul talked about uh, on the last clip, he talked about referee positioning. So here, the positioning at the corner kick. Let's focus on the referee positioning. Okay, so basically this one we're going to talk about, you know, for the most part, the default position for a referee at the taking of a corner kick is to the left of the arc at the top of the penalty area. But as a standard practice, referees should keep their feet moving and make slight variations in their positioning, you know, throughout the game. You know, penalty area control is so important because this is where the big decisions are made. So, you know, explosive movement to get an angle of view, to see between the players in the penalty area is so vital and so important. Uh, anything else to add there, gentlemen? No, I think you what you said, Mark, is right. I mean, the referee needs to be flexible. Um, and, you know, from the original position, he has all the players in front of him, which is, which is great. But he can't see through all of those players on the backside of the post. Uh, and you're right, he, he stood flat-footed the entire time. The entire time he stood flat-footed. Absolutely. You know, these are situations where you have to read the team tactics. You know, if it's, if the ball is being played to the near post, this is a good position because the referee is able to see through players and see uh, the potential challenge or deflection at the near post. But in this case, you'll see, as Paul mentioned, this is a, a longer uh, back post uh, corner kick. And in this case where the referee starts uh, and where he ends up at the end of this is not a, it's not a good position. And as Mark mentioned too, you got to be dynamic. You got to be flexible. You know, games are won and lost in and around the penalty area, you know, and, and then especially when you have corner kicks, when challenges with the goalkeepers occur and you really need to be in there to diffuse situations as well. So it's very, very important, especially now, especially this coming year with the accidental handball uh, rule change where you know, this, in this position doesn't necessarily give you the best um, line of sight and angle of view to see if an accidental handball occurs in the, on the back post. So you need to be dynamic. Lance, if I may. Absolutely. Of course. Um, 
if I may kind of like we always talk about to me, the, the key here, like uh, you mentioned, Todd and Paul, uh, the keys, the adjustment, we have to adjust our positioning accordingly. And what we say in ECSR is you have to adjust where the game needs you. The game does not need you three yards outside the penalty area standing still. Uh, as you as, as all of you gentlemen have mentioned, the ball is played to the far post. So as a referee, you have to adjust, recognize that, and move immediately, not three seconds later or 10 seconds later. So, uh, you know, it has to be an awareness factor there also on the referee to recognize that immediately and move, you know, immediately where he can has a better view. Question in the chat, uh, even though we're not supposed to take questions in the chat, uh, it was Eugene again, and I'll answer or we'll, we'll take it because he had a good uh, comment before. Uh, he's asking, you know, is it acceptable to start your position inside the penalty area on that opposite side? So I think the question comes down to, you know, is it okay? Because there seems to be some sort of a stigma where we don't, you know, you know, referees aren't supposed to go in the penalty area. You know, so Paul, what what is your feelings on that where referees can start their positioning inside the penalty area? Yeah, as long as you're not interfering with the play or may, may interfere with the play, um, then yes, you need to be where you need to be where you need to be. And we'll go back to, uh, you know, Mark's comments, uh, you know, in the previous, you know, slide about, you know, in this slide where you have to be moving. So if you're in a position that you can see everything that's going on and then the ball comes transition near you, then you have to move. You can't stand. And, you know, you know, with that soccer, you know, in the last, you know, you know, if you watch soccer in the last two months, whatever it's been on, you know, which I've done a lot of soccer watching and Mark and, and Manny and the rest of us on the panel, you know, Lance and, and Todd, the decisions that the referees make at the, at the international level and at the pro level almost never have anything to do with positioning. Mm -mm. Never. So it's all in decision making. So yeah, it's judgment calls, whether it's a foul, not a foul, yellow, whatever it is, but almost never due to positioning. So uh, we need to correct that at the collegiate level and uh, be in the right position where we need to be, when we need to be there. To, and as, as Mark said, he says, and Lance said as well, all the big calls happen inside the penalty area. So a good question, Gene. All right. Let's let's move on to the next clip here. And and let's, you know, following on what we were just talking about with penalty area and the importance. Let's start it again from the beginning and watch this high press from the the team. Go ahead and push play, right? Referee is not aware of the high press from the the black team uh, against the white blue team. Sorry. Virginia. Go ahead and push play. So you have to anticipate here and you have to be ready for that penalty area incident. You know, penalty, as I said before, as Paul's mentioned and Manny and, and Lance and Todd, penalty area situations should be a priority in referee management, which must be controlled with proximity and a good angle to evaluate these incidents. So many situations demand a proactive and dynamic adjustment to the right, a reaction or an explosive movement for proper control of the incident. So although it can be controlled in exceptional, exceptional situations with assistant referee assistance, here, this is the full responsibility of the referee. So um, when, when play is in the penalty area, you just have to have that heightened awareness and, and be ready to read the game. And you've heard this many times. What does reading the game mean to you? 
reading the game means looking at the players, seeing their high press, seeing them put the, the opponents under pressure to make a mistake, to then capitalize as a referee, where do I need to be if this then happens? I also want just a, another side note on this, and then I'll let Paul weigh in. Just want you to notice the time here. <clears throat> this is coming out of halftime. And we've talked about this over the years as well. It's really important that we come out of halftime ready for the second half. You know, uh, sometimes we go in the locker room, we cool down a bit, and we talk about other stuff than the game, and we come out, and we're not necessarily fully prepared for the second half. This happened less than 30 seconds into the second half. One might question whether the referee was fully into the second half of this game yet or expected the first minute or two to just be a little bit more feeling each other out. And so it's important to be ready for anything as you come out of the locker room to start the second half. You know, I'll just, you know, we've talked about this so much, you know, over the course of this last six, seven years, whatever it's going to be, or probably even more, you know, you know, we, we talk about this. We talk about a non-conference team coming in to play one of the top teams in the country. Um, and we need to be aware of what, you know, um, how intense that's going to be. The second thing is, is that you have, you had 45 minutes to judge the, the tactics of the team. And if you're familiar with one team or the other, uh, you, you will know that, you know, Virginia is a high pressure team, especially in the defensive, in, the, in their attacking third. So the referee doesn't anticipate this. He's 40 yards away from play. He gets the call correct, but the only reason he does is that he's not obstructed by other players. So we need to be aware of all of this. We need to be aware of that number nine, who's a very dynamic, strong player, uh, goal scorer, um, and, you know, obviously if you're from the West Coast, you're not going to know that. You can do a little bit of homework, whatever. But why would that Why would that defender pass that ball there? There's three Virginia players right there. Why he would he take that chance to go inside is beyond me. So, again, that's the other thing that, you know, that has to alert the referee saying, wow, that's just a head scratcher. Uh, but the referee needs to, to be more alert and be um, – understand what the, the possibilities of what can happen. And we need to understand the possibilities. No, I, all those, I mean, it's excellent points and you have to anticipate, as Paul said, you have to read the play. You have to know the teams you're refereeing, you know, uh, teams make adjustments at halftime, just like we as referees need to make adjustments at halftime. Uh, as Mark had mentioned too about, you know, angle of view and proximity. Now the referee gets it right. He gets the call, right? The penalty kick, but it's not believable to the white team because of how far he is away from play. So part of that penalty area control is that proximity. Obviously angle of view is the most important. And then we get proximity. We get the distance to the play. But in this case, there really isn't uh, a whole lot of uh, excuse of why um, the, the referee does not anticipate. But at the same time, to his credit, he does get the call correct. Now, there's, there's discussions in the chat about, you know, is this dog so, you know, challenging for the ball? Um, you know, 
this topic is more about positioning than it is about the actual misconduct and challenge. But also just remember, if the referee is out of position, they're not thinking about dog's hoe. They're thinking about the actual play itself and how they are out of position to, and they need to get there. So all of a sudden, once you start thinking about that, you're out of position, you're going to, you're going to, the, you're going to forget about whether it's dog. So or not. And then when you realize that this could be dog, so the image has changed because now more defenders are around. So part of this positioning is also helping you get the next call. Correct. I, I, I gotta, I have to mention this, um, you know, and this is, yes, this is positioning. So this has to do with positioning because the referee is so far out of position. We need to have that assistant referee get involved. If he is not going to raise that, if he's not going to blow that whistle, I mean, he is, well, you do the guess here. Uh, he's 40 yards from play, um, the 45, whatever that distance is, this is a, this is a clear penalty and if it, just say that the referee was screened by other players, uh, what's fair to the game is the assistant referee has to get involved, has to get involved. Thanks, Paul. Manny, would you like to add anything? No, it's good stuff. You guys covered it well. Good stuff. All right. And Doug, just on next. the question about dog so here, just recognize your only decision on dog so here is whether to give a yellow card or not. This seems to be a play in the ball. So if you decide this is dog so, you're going to change your, your red to a yellow because it's a play on the ball in the penalty area. And if you decide it's not dog so, you're still giving the penalty kick. You're just not giving the yellow card. So that's ultimately your decision on dog so here. You're not, it's not a life and death situation, frankly. Get the penalty kick right. That's most important. Absolutely. Thanks, Todd. All right. Next clip. This is more of the same in a sense, right? Uh, corner kick, restart positioning, at, uh, penalty area control. So, you know, sometimes penalty area situations change quickly from right to left and vice versa. Uh, referees must use quick explosive movements as we mentioned before to get the best angle of view possible for 1v1 contact or you know anticipating the cross here with the corner kick which is obvious so the referee is just standing there and if a quick rebound comes out he possibly is in a position where being flat-footed he might get hit by the ball so we just want a little more movement here a little more dynamism <laughs> Look, guys, you know, uh, this is this is this is my game, and I've had the conversation with the referee. You know, where is the action? His, his position to start is fine. I, I don't have a problem with the position. He sees, you know, he's he's in the line of battle. He sees what he needs to see. But where is the action after the ball, you know, comes down from the from the from the service? It's at the back post. Look at the bodies. Six, six, seven players at the back post, all within the six. And he needs to move to his left to judge where he can see more clearly. If, look, once the ball is in play, what are the players doing? They're moving. <laughs> so why doesn't the referee move? It's the same thing. 
And Paul, would would it be fair to say you're not looking for the referee to sprint 100 miles an hour and make these wild and crazy dynamic movements? You just want him to kind of just shift with the play. Just these are steps over. 14 mark, yeah. See, yeah. We're gonna, it just come come to the left of 14, so we can have a clear view of what's there. Great. Yeah, and this is about building habits. You know, we all do this. We've all been guilty of, of, of standing and watching and being very static on, on, on set pieces, corner kicks uh, during the match. We've all done it. But it's about building these habits that, for success. You know, working matches, when we work matches at, at uh, like the, the Division two, II, Division three, NAI level, JUCO level, that's where we really start to develop our habits that later when we get opportunities on the big stage, like this game from, from Paul, we're able to not think about, oh, I need to be moving. It just becomes second nature. So Lance, um, this is obviously not a uh, North Texas referee because I would have taught him where to move. So this is like a Florida referee possibly? Oh. <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, it's a college referee. So, <laughs> Hey, guys, I'm just kidding, guys. Little, little humor. I love it. Love it. <laughs> All right, let's take it to the next clip. Another example of corner kick positioning. While we're waiting, is this uh, for the? Is this a good position for the ref? You guys can touch. Uh, you guys can start chatting about that. Let's Matter see. of fact, what we'll do is we'll bring somebody in. Go ahead and pause the clip. Great idea. We're going to bring in a f uh, we're going to bring in Mike DeFelice from New Jersey. Mike is a NISOA and ECSR member. You just have to unmute yourself and you're ready to go. I know that there's a little bit of lag time. Is this referee practicing social distancing, guys? Morning, everyone. Morning, Mike. So talk us through this. Uh, that position, you know, I don't like to take it too much. But sometimes I have, if you know, if I notice a team is playing the ball short on corners a lot, I, I will get everything that's in front. But, you know, I like to take the top of the D. That way, when the ball moves, it goes to the back corner. I can shuffle to, you know, to the back. If it's to the front, I can see if there's anything in front that's a handball or a foul or like like you guys said before, if it gets in the box, like inside the uh, in the goal area, you know. Keep it frozen there, Mark. Don't move it. Any any other comments, Mike? No, that's about it. Go ahead, Lance. So Mike, uh, what do you look for? when you're setting up your position for a corner kick? Well, the first thing I look for is, is there two people, two players on the ball? You know, obviously there's not there. If there was a short corner, I probably would be over there. I would talk to my AR too and say, look, watch everything on the back post, man. Cause I got to see if they're playing short corner. Obviously in this clip, I, I, if they're hitting it long all the time, you know, I'd look to see, you know, where the ball's being played a lot you know, in previous corners. If it's the first corner, I'm, I'm going to be at the top of the D and getting ready to shuffle if it's short or long. Absolutely. Are, are you also looking to see where the players start 
their their positioning? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, if it's a right-footed player, obviously he's swinging the ball in. So I can't tell with the wall there if he's on which, which that player is, that girl's, is she on the, which, she's a left-footer, you know it's swinging out. So I would definitely not be where that referee, but if, you know, if they're hitting a corner with a right foot and they're swinging, I mean, it looks like she even has the ball. I'm so, yeah, she's, she even has the ball on the wrong side of the corner. I usually don't see players take corners like that. Like, you know, see where the ball is? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like that's weird that she's even taking a right-footed sh- uh, cross like that. Usually, they're the ball's on the other side. Mm-hmm. They're pinging it in right there, you know, and it does look a little short. So, you know, the referee should have started running. Sh- you know, he should start running. You know, like as soon as it's about to get hit, I start running in. If it's going to be sw- swung in real low like that, so I'm kind of like right there with the players, and you know, kind of like Tambo said before, you know, you you go where you need to be. You know, if you if if that ball is there, you need to be there. You know, if that's where the the foul is going to occur, and it is. Is, swinging. is there anything with the goalkeeper too that you uh, you look for? Always for make sure I move to where I can see the goalkeeper. You know, I would if I can't like he looks like he has a good vision, but you know, there's a player standing right in front of the goalkeeper right there. So you need to make sure you know you're really watching what's going on there too. Absolutely. You should have a heightened awareness when you have players that are in and around the goalkeeper. Yeah. Uh, cause typically those are like flashpoints where they can, uh, intensity and emotions can run very high and they're looking, you know, that's a tactic that teams use, right. To yeah. Mike, to, if, if you see a player on the goalkeeper, typically that means the ball is going somewhere around the goalkeeper. You know, I've made mistake. I, you know, I've made a mistake before, you know, and I, I've been on the phone call with, with Tambo and I was like, well, I couldn't see it. And he's like, you need to see everybody. He's right. And ever since then, you got to watch everybody. You got to have, you got to tell if the, all 22 players in there, Hey, fourth official, you know, watch it to top of the D a little bit. You know, if we have the headsets, we can talk to each other. Like I, you know, I want to keep the guys, the AR one and the AR and the fourth official involved. So they're just not hanging out, you know, kicking it with the assistant coach. Like I'm watching 22 players inside the box. I need You need help as a referee. Yeah, and where does that start where, where, when you when you give directions like that to your your crew members? Oh, that's an easy one. That's your pregame, man. You got to tell everybody what you want. You know, absolutely. Area responsibilities, right? On short kicks, yep. long kicks. Which side of the corner kick is being taken of the field? Um, one thing we say in Concacaf is, you know, it's there's no excuse to be out of position on a set piece because that doesn't require fitness. All it requires is you being able to read the game and being focused and concentrated on the play. Yeah. One one other, one other technique I use on the corner kicks is, you know, if I'm at top of the D I rarely, if there's only one person taking the corner, I never look over there. I watch what's going on box and I just wait for the sound of the ball. Once the ball's hit, you know, you can kind of tell by the way it's, you know, if you know the sound of the ball, you can tell where, if it's just like hit like a slap or if it's punched or it's driven. You know, you know where to be. And as the other guys have said on this uh, webinar, you know, you just, you need to move, you know. Thanks, Mike. Okay. Thank you, Mike. All right, guys, take it easy. The only thing that I want to say here is that, you know, and we just, we just saw, you know, Mark play the entire clip. In that entire clip, I, I don't think the referee moved five feet. Um, 
So, you know, he's, he's, he's taking social distancing way, way to the next level, you know, for sure. Um, you really need to be where the action is. Um, and as I, as I tell all of our friends that I speak to, you know, Mike alluded to it, you need to be looking at players and not through players. And as his play continues, he's starting to look through a lot of players. And you can't do that if you're standing. You, you can't. You have to move. But this seems to be the theme in these first four or five clips of referees just standing. All right. Thanks for that, Tambo. Let's go to the next clip. And again, like everyone said here, is once attacking play is in the penalty area, explosive movement is required to quickly adapt to the needs of the game. So let's see. Is this next clip an example of explosive movement in the penalty area. Jesus Christ. So I'm going to ask Manny to take this one because this is, um, I think, one of Manny's matches. Um, yeah, basically here what you see, referee is um, pretty far out. What's he, a good... Uh, eight yards, uh, six, eight yards outside the penalty area. You can see where the ball is going to be served towards right out right in the uh, goal area. And uh, you can see there's like, uh, what, at least 10 players in that vicinity, like six, mm -hmm. six and eight yards from the goal line. So as a referee here, you have to recognize that and be aware of that right away and adjust your position accordingly. Uh, referee is way too far. Uh, the other potential problem, he's got like a straight-on view uh, of this play, of the ball being served. And uh, really, there's no reason for him to be there where he's at, the distance he's from, the angle he's at. He could, should, should probably move a little bit more to his left, a little bit in more uh, to be able to see the contact, the grabbing, the fouls that, you know, that could be uh, happening or are happening which there's no way he's going to be able to call from, what is that, 20 yards away or so, at least. So, and as you can also tell, if you can play it one more time, Mark, or uh, whoever's Doug. playing that. Yeah, ball being served. He's moving actually away. If you notice, he's, he's taking a step or two backwards, which, which makes um, – I, I don't understand that um, in terms of he should be closer moving where he can have a better view in case there is a foul or there will be a challenge because everybody's aware here that uh, there's going to be a challenge. There's going to be a play right by the six, and um, he needs to be closer to play the referee here, much closer, a better angle, uh, moving towards the play inside the penalty area. What do you think, Paul? What's your thoughts? It's 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 the same. It's it's the same thing. I mean, the referees. I mean, I mean, we should, he should actually pay for that parcel of grass there that he's killing. You know, so um, it, it's it, it, you know it's the same thing. They're just not moving their feet. You know, and we can't understand it. Of you know, luckily nothing happens here. But still, we need to learn from all of these situations that we see. Um, and you know, this is Division One soccer. This is you know, so they're we're getting paid decent money to put a good product on the field. The players are playing hard and we're just standing around looking like we don't care to be there. And that's, that's a big problem. That's true. Yeah. The other, uh, the other thing I would mention is 
sometimes as referees, we don't pick up these cues. I mean, obviously, you can see the girl's not going to play a short ball from the corner of the, uh, the middle Tennessee player, the blue, the blue team. She's not going to play a short ball. Uh, she's going to play it into the penalty area, close to the goal. So players, the game, the way the player's serving the ball from the corner, you can tell she's going to hit it in the center there. You know, why are we 20 yards away? You know, why are we uh, 22, 20 yards away when when we should uh, – and standing still, we should be moving in to get a better view. So players tell you what they're going to do. You, you can tell just by looking at their body language and the way they're swinging at the ball and kicking the ball. Here, uh, the referee obviously didn't uh, recognize that or, or pay attention. And, and ultimately, too, Manny, uh, the referee is very lucky that – Nothing happened other than a goal being scored, a clean goal. So this is really a lucky situation for the referee that a decision did not have to be made inside the penalty area because many of the comments that are saying in the chat is there's no credibility when you make that decision, whether it's right or wrong. You don't have the credibility based on the distance and based on the lack of uh, angle of view here. So... um, you know, it's, it's, it's extremely important to stay focused and, you know, anticipate play and be dynamic. You know, you don't have to be the fastest referee or the fittest referee to be dynamic on uh, set pieces and corner kicks. You just have to be focused and concentrated. And I also like to point out, too, is if you're using headset devices, it's a good opportunity if you're an assistant referee or fourth official to remind your referee, hey, be more dynamic next time. Hey, start, you know, is that where you want to start? Hey, you know, you're not refereeing the game, but maybe they just need a quick reminder because they, uh, you know, maybe there's a lot going on uh, in the match that they just need that quick reminder. Lance, you know, um, something that you're saying is so important and, and it comes to that habit that you build when there's a corner kick and how do you prevent uh, the players from jostling in the penalty area. One of the things that I was always taught the few times someone gave me a whistle was, hey, walk all the way into the penalty mark. Put your foot on the penalty mark. Make a presence to those players in the penalty area. Let them know that you're there. Always keeping an eye on the restart, of course, because you don't want to be at the penalty mark when the ball's being kicked. So keeping an eye on the kicker and taking that first minute to get in there Put your foot on the penalty mark. Make a presence with the players. Let them know that you're there watching. None of the holding, none of the jostling in the penalty area. And then retreat back out to that next position. And that way, you know, they're feeling you breathe down their neck and they know I can't make, I can't foul. So that's just one of the things that I was always taught. Great point, Mark. Excellent. And you have eight players that are all uh, to the left of the back post from this angle. You want to make sure those players know that you're watching the holding and the grabbing and the pushing in there. So to, to Mark's point, you want to get in there and have something and, and have maybe a word with them or maybe just make sure they know you're watching them and make sure you've got the right angle to see the grabbing, the shirt tugging and everything else that might be going on there. And of course, the AR on that end of the field needs to make sure that they've got the view from the back angle. Great. All right. The next clip is... Uh... Let's, let's focus on the assistant referee, some dynamic movement and AR positioning here. So let's play the clip.
Let's play that again because this is a great example. The, you know, I'm going to go ahead and take this one. <laughs> the positioning of the AR is vital to making yours, correct Mark. decisions. It's yours. <laughs> this is ex especially true given the speed and this dynamic nature of the game. You know, correct positioning for the second to last defender ensures that the assistant referee can, you know, properly identify player movement and player locations at the, at the time the ball is played by the teammate. So let's let's watch this again in its entirety. Now I'm going to tag it off to one of my panelists to add some comments. We'll let the retired FIFA AR comment as well. I, you know, I I tell you, I, I there's not a whole lot that I can say about this clip. The referee does everything right. He's close to play. He follows play. He reads the play. Um, you, you know, he doesn't come too close because if, if you don't need to back it up. But if it, when the, the player gets the ball, she's surrounded by three opponents. Um, other players, other referees could have been too close, anticipating something would happen with three on one. Uh, but uh, he, he does everything right here. Um, this, is, this is very well done by this referee. Absolutely. Mark, if you Mark, notice, Lance, if Lance, yes, I may add also what uh, what I like also with the AR. Well, both the, the communication. Look at them; they're looking at each other. The referee and the AR, they have eye contact. They're looking at each other. Um, neither has a foul. It's a throw-in. I mean, to me, that's very good eye contact, eye communication uh, with the two officials there. The basics, getting the basics right. Correct. And then I, what I also like about this positioning of the referee, you notice how the referee, uh, when play is near that penalty area line that's parallel to the assistant referee, we call that no man's land. Because if a foul occurs around that penalty area line that's parallel, it's very difficult to be able for the assistant referee to tell if the foul occurred inside or outside the penalty area. So the referee start moves off the diagonal and starts to pinch play in with his assistant referee. And we've been talking about this at NISOA ECSR uh, joint uh, clinics for the past. Well, for last year, we talked about this and this has been a point of emphasis where, you know, we want referees to get off the diagonal the system. They, we want them to pinch over when it, there's a challenge that could potentially be inside or outside the penalty area. So the referee does a good job of moving towards that and uh, being in a good position in case there is that challenge there. Another way we look at that, Lance, is when really when we we really don't talk about the diagonal too much anymore. We really don't use that. It's like 1980s for the most part. We basically, right. you know, when we talk to the referees and teach them, instruct them, we tell them just like Paul and Mark said earlier and Todd, go where the game needs you and go yep. where you can see. And uh, that's kind of basically what, uh, you know, we talk about, especially in our clinics that we do join and ECSR clinics uh, with Paul, that how important it is to you have to be where the game needs you and where you can see. And it's, you know, the, the, the diagonal, that term is, you know, like, like I said, it's, uh, it's an older term that, uh, you know, wouldn't use as much anymore. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, gone are the days where you run up and down in a straight line on the field and at, at a diagonal, you know, you always want to be moving where the play is, 
where the, where the next and being able to be in a position where you can anticipate the next phase of play, you know, cause we all know that the current phase is most important, but also that next phase of play is just as important as well. Hey, Lance, Man, great point. Lance, there's a question here from Austin Reyes and he says, can the fourth official position himself to where the ref has no clear view? Can you talk to us about optimal fourth officiating positions? Do you see the fourth official here, Lance, in the, in the view? Yes, I do. So is, is it something that you would recommend that a fourth official take a position where the ref can't possibly have a clear view of an incident? I think this, in this case, it's a little challenging because if you, if you notice, and if you've been at the school, um, the technical areas are very tight, you know, with the, and the fourth official area is very tight. So in this case, the, the your fourth official is going to help you with that area that's in front of the technical area. You know, something that we've kind of, uh, we call as the free zone, where it seems to be that's where players have a, um, a sense of feeling that they can commit fouls more regularly based on statistics, um, typically because they have their teammates and their coaches there, either for support or they're trying to you know, prove their, their hustle and their effort. Um, so a fourth official should always be active uh, in terms of uh, watching behind the referee's back um, and being able to help out the referee or the assistant referee in case, uh, you know, in case the opportunity arises. But at the same time, is, as a fourth official, you do not want to be over-involved on the play because you know, your job is to help the crew and watch everyone's back. And it starts with the pregame. You know, going into the pregame as a referee, you know, being able to, you know, we don't, we don't emphasize pregame enough at, at you know, in our, in our matches, you know, because we have so much going on uh, with the timeline, especially this year when we start the season with all this COVID practices and, and, uh, and, and protocols when we get to a field and get to our, our venue. So we really need to take the time to have a detailed pregame uh, with all crew members. Lance, can I, can I, can we get a question? Can I get a question from the group or an answer from the group? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So here's, here's the question. So Lance brings it up that we want to come off and be close to this, you know, the, the coffin corner or the dead zone, whatever you want to call it to the group. I want to know what's the indications that you need to be there. What's your cues. And use the chat function to answer. Or we can pick one. It's up to you, Lance. No, that's great. That's a great question, Paul. So we've got player movement uh, from Tim Stewart. Uh, Mina from Alabama says speed and pressure. Uh, Tony O, that's Tony Abbas from Texas, says uh, number of players. Uh, you know, players involved, likelihood, judging the next phase of play. Is it going to be a challenge or is it going to be a cross? Um, I think that's a really great point to make because you don't always have to go over um, and pinch in towards the, your AR there. You know, you really have to read the play. If it's uncontested and, and the next phase appears to be a cross, if you pinch in and pinch over, you're going to be actually out of position. So that's a great point that was made in the chat here too is, you know, it's not a blanket statement, but it's really you have to read, read the game. Knowing player styles, uh, defenders moving in, 
things like that. Keeping, you know, another person said, uh, keep, uh, you know, keep, even when you're uh, pinching in with your assistant referee, always keep your head on a swivel to look for, uh, you know, to look at the players on the backside. Yeah, Jonathan just said he took the words out of my mouth. Number of defenders uh, versus the number of attackers. Yeah, so it's numbers on the ball. Um, you know who's pressuring that. So yeah, you know all those all those comments are right. So and again, this all goes back to what Lance said early on in the, when we started. It's all about habits. You know, so if we develop these habits when we see all of these things that were just mentioned uh, and develop that habit, then that's something where we won't be out of position. Next. Okay, so let's play that clip one more time. And the topic here is assistant referee and referee movement. And as Lance mentioned, free zone control. Okay, go ahead and play it one more time, Doug. Watch right here. The ball, there's no challenge on the ball, and the referee takes a look upfield. So that's a very subtle uh, movement by the referee, and I just wanted to add that so we didn't have to play it again. That's a great point. And fouls in front of the, uh, the benches are so important. As you mentioned before, you know, this is where players feel the need or they feel free of, you know, I can commit a foul here and I'll be supported because my coach is here or I have all my teammates on the bench. So if somebody gets up and starts to push me, I have my, my teammates here to watch my back. You know, this is a pivotal area. It requires proactive refereeing and any preventative measure in this area. If the speed of play through this area on the field is slow, then your proximity to play in that area, you know, must be increased in order to have a presence. If the speed of play is uh, elevated, then the more likelihood you would transition through this zone to the next phase of play. And in this case too, Mark, you know, the, the, the referee, the, uh, fourth official comes the referee does a, the referee does a good job of looking for the next phase, but not necessarily getting to the next phase. So in the, you really have to read the play and know the team tactics and know what game you're refereeing that day. Um, because there may be a long ball that's going to be played up top by that, uh, that team that's attacking here. Whereas when the referee is jogging with the player with the ball and the long ball is made, the referee then becomes out of position. So this is where we want to see a little bit more, um, more sprinting ability 
to get ahead of play because the referee's looking at the next phase, but he's not necessarily getting to the, to the next phase. So we want, we'd like to see a little bit more sprinting ability um, to get ahead of play. But at the same time, that way they can cut down the distance if the ball is being played long or if the ball is played short, they're in a good position there. But, but uh, ultimately here, if you notice the referee's position, when he calls the foul, he doesn't get any, any dissent from the bench. Yeah. Um, because um, I, he takes just care of it. Add one thing here, Lance. And it's, it's all uh, really good analysis, but this is uh, four minutes into the game. So we probably don't have a lot of subs getting ready to check into the game. Uh, alternate official is finding a place in the shade under the shade of the tent. Whereas this is a good time for the alternate official to make his presence known right at that, uh, right at that flag, especially as play comes up in front of the bench. So he can assist uh, if the referee happens to miss something behind his back. And I would suggest that this is where the fourth official ought to be making his presence a little bit better known. And uh, as the game starts to settle in. Because again, if you look at uh, the teams involved here, these are a bit of a rivalry match, but you're also dealing with the number six team in the country uh, playing against a team that's looking for an upset. And so that those first 15 minutes of the game, not only do the three people on the field, but the alternate official needs to make sure they're setting the tone. And you, even though the bench uh, accepts this foul, you will see the assistant coach immediately asking for the yellow card, of course, because they're already looking, already looking to start putting the other team under pressure here. So having the alternate official a little better uh, involved, even this early stage of the game, making his presence known in the first five to 15 minutes of the game, I think is important here as well. Great. Uh, anything else to add? Anyone? Or we go to the next clip. So I, I want to preface this next clip, Manny. Um, this is a Florida referee. So I just wanted to say, uh, hey, let's play this clip. <laughs> a little sensitive, aren't we? <laughs> Uh, feast your eyes on this uh, referee here. This is what I call keeping a pace in refereeing. This is a term that you know really highlights a referee doing the best he can to keep up with play and and keeping close to play. So you know this is uh, just something I wanted you to <laughs> see an example of great movement. And we'll roll that one more time. Keeping a pace. Now you want me to? You ready for me to criticize him now? Not yet, please. He's okay. sensitive. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I'm teasing, Mark. I'm joking. <laughs> he gets to his area where he needs to be. He's arrived into that penalty area, into that third, uh, the the attacking third of the field. He's arrived there. He, you know, he has control of this situation and doesn't need to exert too much energy after he's got to a safe place to now observe in that critical area in the attacking third of the field if something happens. You know, this is great reading of the game by this referee. Shows great experience under his belt that, you know, he knows the game so well and, and really gives an effort to be where he needs to be to see an incident. Is that goalkeeper wearing the same color socks as the attackers? I'm not very sure. All right, next clip. <laughs> Hang on. Hey, hey, Doug, play one more time. Go ahead. And Manny's got a, a comment to add here. 
No, I'm kidding, Mark. I'm just joking. Yeah, no, we it, welcome it, your comments. This is good. It's, it's good to, I agree with Mark. He did well. He did well, except for the socks. <laughs> <laughs> All right, perfect. We can go to the next clip. <laughs> That's one, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Here's, here's another great example of transitioning through the center circle, really making a, a great run, following plays, showing some energy and enthusiasm, being a part of the game. You know, this is just a great example. Yes, great example being dynamic. You'll see that the referee does have a burst of speed here. He's in a great position to see the foul calls the foul and he has he has great game control because of his uh his fitness ability here as well as his uh, ability here, to read the game so again nothing wrong with the referee nothing wrong with the referee this is a question stop it please stop it Doug. so my question is my question is why does the, the, the there's a defend i mean uh and a, a player with the ball just inside the penalty area He's on the attack. Why does his teammate come in to collect the ball? <laughs> Actually taking the pace away from the game. Now it works out for him here, but I'm just, I'm just, this is what I look at when I watch these things. I just don't watch the referee. I don't understand why players make these decisions. That player with the ball can just keep going. This guy comes and takes it away from him. I, okay. I'm just, I digress a little mm -hmm. bit. Sorry. Uh, let's add that to the reel of highlights. Also, gentlemen, if I may add, uh, Mark. Mark, may I speak? You don't have to ask I'm just Manny. supposed to be the moderator. Okay, after you, Manny. Just kidding with uh, Mark. See if he gives me permission. You have and permission, I, yes. Uh, if you notice, also what I liked here, when the referee runs through the center circle, he runs there quickly. Um, I've noticed a lot, even in – with a lot of high-level referees in college, they jog through there, and inevitably what happens is we get on the way sometimes or get hit by the ball or interfere with runs. While it's here, the referee, as you can see, he's sprinting through there. He's running through there quickly, so he's going to be out of the way. And at the same time, like Lance mentioned earlier, um, if that play did continue, he'd be very close for the next phase of play there. So um, I thought that was well done by the referee there. It's good positive clips. Good positive clips. Yeah, let's move to the next one. Watch the referee's positioning. Recognizing the danger zone, that free zone area there, and he, he did a great job to work hard to get over there. Still moving, his feet are still moving, takes a good position, watching the game, reading the game, seeing where he needs to go. Go ahead, uh, Paul, Todd, Manny, Lance, take it away. I think this is another example of good movement here. And we see um, maintaining, maintaining dynamic movement, not getting caught flat-footed, moving toward play, and... Uh, and being able to deal with situations that are happening from one end of the field to the other and getting in the proper position for the key decisions that need to be made. I, 
I, you know, it's if you compare him to the, well, let's look at this. I don't understand this one burst here, and I, I could be wrong. Uh, he comes over to the touchline. I guess he wants to get behind the play somewhat, where it works out for him. You know, so it's fine. He, he adjusts it. It's fine. So, but what I see for this referee as compared to Rashawn in the in the last clip, he only has one pace. Um, and you can see that on the on the um, on the counter attack where the goalkeeper comes out to play, um, he doesn't have that burst of exertion energy um, that Rashawn had uh, in the in the in the in the previous clip. And that's you know when you have that that transition when you have that counter attack that's when you need to get on your horse. <clears throat> so that's the only thing. Uh, if there's a negative, that's the only thing with this ref. But good movement, you know, it keeps shuffling, goes upfield. <clears throat> but uh, the burst of energy just, uh, right now he needs to be on his horse. Mm -hmm. And he's not. So, but again, you know, we have to be aware of this situation because, again, he's not in the frame, so he's 20 yards not there. So if he has to make a tough decision of a, of a, goalkeeper foul here, then we need to, it needs to be a heck of a lot closer. Just my opinion. <clears throat> no, Paul, and you're absolutely correct here. You know, I, I look at this and I see there's two, two points in this clip where, where, you know, needed that needs that extra burst of energy, that second gear, you know, and that's when at the beginning of the clip, when uh, the attacker is taking the ball towards the penalty area where he, where he then, you know, takes this position. Uh, where he actually uh, loops around a player, which then creates m even more of a distance that he has to catch up. But in that case, if he uses dynamic mobility and movement and sprinting ability, he he could catch up to them. Um, and then at this part too, right here, as you know, recognizing that the ball is going to be served, uh, you know, even before that, knowing that there's nobody challenging for the ball, like right here, that's when he needs to start heading up field and using sprinting ability because again, like we said, you know, he gets lucky here that nothing happens with that goalkeeper challenge, because if he has that challenge and, uh, you know, he has to make a decision, is it inside, outside, is it yellow? Is it red? You know, those are the things that, you know, by being so far away from play, it's hard to sell and have credibility. Go back a little bit, Doug or Mark, go back to where, uh, Lance was just talking about where he needs to start. Uh, okay, go forward. All right, stop it there. <clears throat> Again, I, I look at the, I look at the players' options. Um, now you you can't see just just next to this the one the next green player right by the right by the bench there. You really can't see, but you can see the shadow of a player that is 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 uh, defending this first green player here. His only option is to go long. That's his only option. He can't go back because he's already, you know, moving forward with the ball. So he can't go to a player near the touchline there because there's a defender right there. His only option is to go long. We need to see that. We as referees need to see that. And, you know, even as Lance said before, you know, even if you're not seeing that, you have to be on your horse because that's, that's where the play is going. So, um, again, I like to point out, uh, you know, the where the players are to, to say that, okay, there are no other options for that player, so the referee needs to know that. 
Paul, excellent point, Paul. If you could go back, uh, Doug, for a second when the ball served by that player's left foot and stop. Okay, and stop. Um, to add to that real quick, Paul, is you can tell, you know, by knowing, by everybody here knowing soccer, playing, have played, have coached, have refereed for years, you can tell by that player's body language, the way his body's turned, the way he's looking at the ball, where he's looking, he's going to play 30, 40, 50-yard ball. So it makes no sense for you to be near him at that point. You need to just start taking off, as Paul mentioned. So that's uh, with that, those are the type of things that we need to recognize uh, a little sooner. Because if he would have recognized that a second or a second and a half sooner, he'd be what, Lance? Another 8, 10, 12 yards closer mm -hmm. to play? Which would help, obviously. <clears throat> awesome. All right, Lance, let's take it. To, go ahead, Paul. Yeah, I just want to – I'm reading the comments here. Uh, again, I, I've never refereed with comps, so I, I'm not saying that this that Matthew is right or wrong. Uh, so I'm going to leave it to the, the CONCACAF experts here. Um, and Matthew writes, if comps, fourth official needs to be towing ref to anticipate long ball towards and fourth needs to be moving to attacking side to get view since ref is behind play. I have no problem with the fourth official moving. The question is about the comps. Um, you know, obviously it's an individual preference of what people want to hear in their ear. So um, actually, I'd like to know if, if this is relevant, if this is what the comms are for to tell the referee to move into position. Paul, that's a, that's a great question. And I'm going to take this one because in my experience using comms, I would tell you that there are certain referees that don't want to hear a thing about their movement and positioning and will tell you don't say anything. And then there are some referees that will say, yeah, give me the cue. Let, remind me that if the ball goes into that uh, free zone area in front of the team benches, just say free zone to remind me that it's a critical area of the field. And um, if you've ever worked a game, if any of anyone on the webinars worked a game with Kermit Quisenberry, Kermit is known for, you know, saying these um, key words or cues or numbers to help referees identify what they need to do and go where at what time. So again, it's a personal choice for the referee. Do they want to hear that much information in their ear um, and, and be told where to go? But at times it can be helpful to, you know, as, as Lance's number one AR2, I always <laughs> like to let him know what his options are behind his back. You got one attacker high, high pressed on the line for the counter, you know, so that he's aware of those types of things. And sometimes he'll tell me, Shh, don't talk to me, Mark. But yeah, uh, using the communication devices is is mainly a preference. Yeah, and, and to add to that too is, you know, referees should not be using that as a crutch, you know, of why I'm not in position because my AR didn't tell me or, you know, that my AR has to remind me for 90 minutes. You know, that's, that's not what they're used for. You know, pick <laughs> your moments, pick those critical moments, you know, where that referee needs that additional pick-me-up. Um, you know, and, and then make your points valid, you know, usually, especially towards the end of a match where you really, the referee really needs to dig deep uh, in those last 10 minutes uh, with those counterattacks and whatnot. Um, as Mark said too, it depends on the referee you're working with. I think it, it needs to be covered in pregame. Um, and also it can, and, you know, don't overuse it. Great. Let's, let's, let's take it to, to this last, this last one. Yep. And I'll, I'll just uh, preface this last one on saying that, you know, we've talked about positioning and movement, and we've talked about acceleration, we've talked about the referee positioning, 
And here, you know, referees must read the game and adapt to the needs of the game. So let's show this last clip. No correct anticipation really gives the referee a good angle and, and proximity to make the best decision and applying advantage. Give that shot on goal. Let's see that again. Burst of speed right there. So it's ever important to, you know, read the game, recognize, anticipate, and as play is penetrating down into that penalty area to, as Paul mentioned before, as Lance mentioned, to be on your horse and get down there and be ready for the critical decisions in the penalty area. Player stays on her feet. Good teamwork by the assistant referee there as well to not raise the flag and to look at the referee. Stop it there. Right there. Let's go back to what we talked about. And Lance mentioned earlier about the, you know, the, the coffin corner, dead zone, whatever you want to, whatever you want to talk about it. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> and, and she's doing everything. She, this, this, this referee's doing everything right. But the question to the group the question to the group is, does she need to be closer or does she need to be more towards the center of the field? That's the question. So you can respond in the chat, raise your hand. Okay, we have Chuck Christie said moving to the center. Paul says to the center. Uh, Nick says at this point closer to center. Now, the follow-up question is, why closer to the center? <clears throat> Some are saying for additional angle. Where's the next phase of play going to be? Next phase of play. Anticipating a cross. Typically, you're going to have the cross, exactly. Yeah. I just, I just again, she's, she's done everything right here. She's done everything right. Good for her. Bravo. <clears throat> but for, for our... For, for, for educational purposes. Absolutely. She needs to come a little bit more towards the center of the field because she can see the, if there is a challenge, a penalty, she could see the cross. She's closer to the next phase of play inside the, you know, inside in the center of the field where the cross comes. That's my only comment. But good for her. Good job. Great. Todd, anything else to add? No, nothing from my point. Uh, I think you guys have pretty much said it all. I mean, as, as people have said, moving toward the center after she realizes that the challenge is not going to happen, that there's going to be a cross, and there are three players come converging on the six, three attackers are converging on the six. She needs to be able to see what's going to happen with those three players converging on the six. And still will have an angle if there happens to be a challenge on the ball that comes in late. So I, I just reinforce everything that everybody says. Great job. Well, that concludes the positioning clips. Okay. So are there any, uh, are there any questions from anybody here in the, uh, 
the attendees. We had a, uh, a peak of 261 attendees today. So uh, kudos to everybody um, attending, whether, and I saw a lot of West Coast uh, names on here. So it's fantastic that you're able to spend your Sunday morning with us at NISO and ECSR. Um, no questions. Okay, we're going to go ahead and wrap it up. Just so you know, if, if you want to review any of this uh, webinar recording, or if any of your friends uh, were not able to make the session, it will be made available. Uh, NISOA hosts all of their information and their webinar recordings on uh, NISOA's YouTube channel. ECSR will also have a recording of this as well. And um, I think Paul and Manny, you guys do a great job with your website and keeping that updated. Um, um, uh, throughout the year. I know right now you have a, uh, you guys are doing clips of the week with additional education. So, you know, it's a great place to go check out ECSR's website for, for additional educational opportunities. Uh, first off, Paul, thank you very much for, uh, taking time again out of your busy schedule. We really do appreciate, we always appreciate your insight and your analysis. You know, you really bring a different perspective at times, uh, the player perspective. Uh, so we really do appreciate that. So, you know, thank you for attending, coming on with us. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Loved it. Uh, and our, and our uh, special guest that happened to drop by, and I saw his name uh, in the chat, and I, I'm glad we're able to bring him on. As, you know, it's always a pleasure, Manny, uh, to, to have you on the show. And I know you attended the first ECSR NISO webinar series uh, back in, uh, what was it, June? No, in July? I think it was, uh, it was June or July, one of the two. Feels like we've done so many of these that I lose track of them. So, uh, you know, Manny, thank you again always for providing, um, you know, providing your your insight as well, and you know, bringing the player perspective and the coaching perspective with your experience. Thank you for having me. Um, thank you, Todd, Lance, Mark, uh, and Paul. It's, uh, it's a pleasure and an honor to work with you guys. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you. And of course, Todd, thank you very much for your expertise, your knowledge on the rules. Uh, and I, I really don't, maybe besides Ken Andrus, I really don't know anybody that knows the rule, college rules as well as, uh, as you do. So, you know, thank you again for bringing that perspective and some insight on the clips as well on mechanics. Thank you. Uh, great work by, uh, by all you guys, by Manny and, uh, and Paul and, and Mark and Lance as always pulling this stuff together and appreciate the discussion and input from all the attendees. It always makes it a richer session when we have the, engagement and input from everybody on the call. So thanks everybody for chiming in when asked and uh, look forward to continuing all of this educational material as we get closer, hopefully to a season. Yeah, be safe, everybody, please be safe. Thank you, thank you. And Mark, of course, thank you for everything you do. Thank you for helping put together materials, sourcing clips with the help of ECSR. Uh, we really do greatly appreciate, I mean, you know, to be able to uh, have presentations that are only college clips is something that a couple years ago, you know, we've always wanted to do. Um, so we really do appreciate your help with that and being able to source a lot of that stuff with our, with our friends from ECSR. And of course, Doug, Lana, Never Ends Productions, you guys are awesome. You're fantastic. We couldn't have done this without you. You know, I can tell you from my experience, I've been on a lot of webinars throughout the world. Uh, this this year and you know video quality makes a difference and your guys' video quality is fantastic for everybody so thank you very much and lastly I'm gonna go ahead and put in a survey in the in the chat right now and I will do it a couple times please take time to go and fill in this fill out this survey we use this survey to develop future educational um, 
opportunities and topics. Uh, you know, a lot of the times we've taken what, what you all have been asking for in terms of files of misconduct, penalty area incidences, electronic communication devices, uh, and positioning. So please fill out the webinar or fill out the survey about the webinar and be honest and it's anonymous. So um, please take time to do that. It'll only take you about five minutes. So again, thank you everybody. Thank you panelists. Thank you, Doug and Lana. And uh, we look forward to uh, seeing everybody on the field soon and please be safe. Great stuff, boys. Thank you. Great stuff, Paul.